Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. We're glad you're here. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or tune your devices to Romans chapter 1. Uh, We are, as Maggie said, in a series on Romans, and uh, we started last week, and this week we're going to be talking about still chapter 1, the second half of it, uh, verses 18 through 32. And I want to begin today by just reading the text, because if if you listen to what Paul says here, I think we'll find it sufficiently interesting to to grab hold of and keep our attention for a while. So uh, let's let's just see what he writes, Romans chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 18 and going on through the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, uh, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I am deeply grateful for the chance to study Romans as a church, and I'm, I'm excited to preach this text, believe it or not. Um, it, it has been kind of, a, I don't know, kind of a bear, kind of difficult to get my arms around in, in preparation for our time together, mostly because there's just a lot going on in here, and it's kind of like the proverbial onion with a bunch of layers, and you, you got to keep peeling back the layers to get at what's uh, kind of the core of this. And that's what I think we're going to be able to do together. I think we're going to be able to uh, peel back those layers and really get the, the sense of what's happened. And in, in a certain sense, you could probably summarize the impact of this text, or at least how we should hear it, with two words. You know, the words, me too. And uh, we're going to have a little listener participation today. So let me see. I want to hear if you can say these words. So I want to hear you say the words, me too. Me too. 
Not bad. Very good. I heard a little stronger over here, but I think you guys can probably keep up as the morning progresses. Matter of fact, what we're going to do is, you know, like the old school traditional preacher says, and all God's people said, and then everybody says, amen. You know that whole thing? Well, I'm not, I'm not into like messing with tradition, but we're going to tweak it a little bit today. So just a few times this morning, anytime I say, and all God's people said, instead of saying, amen, I want you to say, me too. You think we can do that together? Let's practice. And all God's people said? Me too. Very good. One more time. And all God's people said? Me too. too. I think that will set us up to really hear uh, what the Spirit wants to say to us through this uh, strange and interesting text. And now before I get to the actual sermon I want to preach, I do need to give a couple of caveats right up front here. One is you got to be careful taking this portion of the text away from what comes before and after it. Got to be careful ripping it out of context. That's always dangerous when you read the Bible. And in particular, this passage that we're looking at is part of a larger section. So really what I'm preaching today and what Mark is going to be talking about next week all works together. And we're only looking at a part of that statement. He'll probably talk a bit about how it all organizes together. Just in your own study of Romans, keep in mind that to really fully understand this, you've got to keep reading. Um, Secondly, there's a lot of things in this passage that we're just not going to have time to unpack in any sort of depth or detail. Uh, The two big ones, first of all, God's wrath is a very important truth and concept for us to understand properly today. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. There will be another time for us to really unpack it in depth. We're just going to have to say the main thing that Paul says. Also, clearly this text uh, speaks to our questions about homosexuality in the, in the biblical world and, and now in our world. And uh, I would love to have the opportunity to say everything I think needs to be said from this and other passages. If we did that today, we would uh, most certainly not have time to deal with the main thing this text is actually saying. So there's a time and a place, and we have and, and will in the future continue to talk about such issues from this and other places. But for today, we're going to have to uh, keep kind of a bird's eye view and, and really hear the main thing this text is communicating. A third caveat is, I promise I'm not trying to be negative. <laughs> I am... Um, about a month ago, was able to give a message here in our, in our Christmas series, and it was from the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah was a prophet during a pretty rough time in world history, and it was about a lot of the negative things happening. It was about how God brings peace out of chaos, and in that message, I, I went through and talked about how 2015 was in many ways a rough year. And uh, looked at some of the key stories and tragedies that happened. And I got an email a couple of days later from uh, a a friend, one of you uh, here at the church. And I don't have a face for the name, so introduce yourself to me because I'd love to meet you. And it was a very friendly email saying, yes, bad things happened. There were also some good things. And it listed off some of the stories of good things happening in 2015 that the news didn't report. And it it was an encouraging email. I was very grateful for it. So whoever you are, thank you for sending that to me. Good things do happen. It's true. But don't hold it against me. Once again, we're looking at a text that demands that we focus our attention on the equal and opposite truth. Uh, Really bad stuff happens on a regular basis. Evil is real, and it's kind of everywhere. Uh, Slavery, starvation, sex trafficking, selfishness, sickness, and those are literally just those that start with S. And what's worse than the fact that bad things happen, we live in a world where people celebrate it. 
where evil is not only tolerated, but it's actually applauded. Uh, Did you know that if you Google the phrase pure evil, those two words, you will find that it is the chosen brand name for a board game, an arcade game, a song, a book, a clothing line, a music album, a sound system company, a movie, and an art gallery. All of these things have chosen as the label or the description or the brand for their stuff. They've chosen the label pure evil. So clearly, we live in a jacked up world that that celebrates its jacked upness. Clearly, we have a problem. But what is it? That's the question that I really want to unpack for us today. What is our problem? At the core, what's happening? Not just like on the edges, but if you think about, you've ever seen like a long string of dominoes, you know, and then you knock down the lead domino and then it just goes all over and knocks down all the others. What we're after today is the lead domino. We're going to try to work our way back and arrive at what it is started this whole mess. And plenty have tried to diagnose the core of our disease. We try to do this all the time. Ask what's wrong with the world and then give an answer. Sometimes we call it crime and we prescribe punishment. Just put the bad people behind bars, keep them away from the rest of us, and, and all will be well. Other times, we say that people are, are not well-adjusted, and so we send them to therapy or we offer some sort of medication. Many times, people point to uh, ignorance or misinformation as the core of our issue, and so the solution becomes more education. And still other times, we have those, and sometimes we ourselves feel that politics is both problem and solution, right? So vote for our guy, he's gonna be great, or, or vote for our lady, or maybe on the other end, occupy, strike, stick it to the man. And um, certainly, when you survey all of the options that people present, none of these are untrue. And all of them have their place, but none of the standard answers that our world provides for us cut deep enough. They're kind of like Tylenol. They're going to relieve some pain, but they're not actually going to deal with the underlying issue. And uh, we, we know that, that the Bible digs a little deeper and, and calls the problem sin. There's this strange little word, sin. The problem is sin. And many of us say, amen, that's right. But, but do we know what we're saying? Even still more commonly, I know I've said this, you probably said this. We say, you know, the problem with that place is that it's full of people. The problem with that school is that people run it. The problem with our family is that people are in it, those kind of things. And it's true. Like we say this because it's true. The problem is, is us. But, I mean, doesn't that beg the question? What's wrong with us? Why is it that when you inject us into any situation, something goes wrong? And here at the beginning of Romans, I think we find Paul's most thorough answer to this question of what's wrong with the world. And so, like I said, to see this well, what we're going to do is we're going to treat the text like a line of dominoes. And we're going to start actually at the back, the end of this passage, and we're going to work our way towards the front to see if we can isolate the primary problem. We're trying to be doctors here and to, to diagnose the human condition. And so we start at the end with, with kind of the biggest symptom. I've already mentioned it, so let me say it again. This is the the outer layer, and it's that people celebrate evil. So last verse in this passage, let me read it again. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So even though people can say, yeah, this is not good, this is not right, or, or like ethical or moral, we're still high-fiving each other at times about it. It's not hard to picture this. 
Picture two young guys bragging about how last night at the party they got these girls to drink a little too much and a picture two grown men celebrating another legal victory in the courtroom laughing about how though their client was obviously in the wrong, it's not what happened but what you can prove that matters. Picture two ladies plotting and then executing and then celebrating over revenge against all of the people who've hurt them. Is it understandable? Yeah, it's understandable. But if you believe the Bible, it's also unacceptable. These things are evil, and yet at times they're celebrated. This is how bad it gets. But of course, if we stop here, we're just treating uh, the symptom on the outside. And if you back up a little bit, you realize, well, if people didn't do bad things, there wouldn't be any bad things to celebrate. So let's peel back another layer, and we arrive at the fourth layer. People do evil things. So they're celebrated because people do them. So now we're getting a little bit closer to the problem. And Paul talks about this, starting in the middle of verse 28. He gives us a list. He says, they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Yeah, I'd say that pretty much covers the spectrum. I'm going to be honest with you. I hate these lists. They're all over the place in the Bible, you know? And I I love part of them. I love the parts where I can say, yeah, I've never done that. Go get them, Paul. Go get them, Bible. You know what I mean? And then I keep reading. Dang, okay, maybe I'm not full of every kind of depravity, but greed, yeah, like sometimes I want more than I need. Envy, I mean occasionally. Not, you know, murder, why is murder next to strife, you know what I mean? Or you keep going, and I don't know if I'd call myself a God hater, but gossip and slander are right next to it. And not often, but there are times when I catch myself saying negative things about other people to make myself feel or look better. I do that. I'm not creative enough to invent ways of doing evil, but I mean, I suppose I probably disobeyed my mom once or twice, you know. And I read, I read these lists, and I come to the conclusion that apparently what's wrong with the world is me. I do evil things. And all God's people said, me Good job. Don't be saying amen right there. I had somebody say amen <laughs> in the last service. I don't know what they were trying to say. So we, we get this, right? But again, even this is just a symptom. Why do we do evil things? That's probably the question we should ask. And it takes us to the third layer. We're working our way through this. So number three, our minds stop working. This is all of, uh, let me read all of verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. If we were thinking clearly, we would never look at an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God and say, you know, I think I'll do it my way. Uh, but, but that's the problem. We're not, we're not thinking clearly. And th- this is what you call ironic because we tend to think that sin makes us smarter, that sin makes us more grown up, you know? You're on a business trip and, and your colleagues are planning an evening full of behaviors that you know God doesn't approve of. And so you say, I think I'm going to decide to stay in tonight and what are they thinking of you as you say this? Well, it's so boring, so backwards. And I think, really? Do, do we really think that like going against God is what makes us more grown up? Sin doesn't make you an adult. It turns you back into a child. 
Now, I know sometimes children think they're smarter than us. I mean, my daughter, she's five the other day. She says, Daddy, what does a polar bear's tail look like? I don't know. And I'm not kidding. She goes, Psh, like five going on 15, you know. Psh, how do you not know? Aren't you a grown-up? <laughs> White and fluffy. I, I, don't, I don't know. So sometimes, you know, kids think they're pretty smart, but we realize that their minds don't always work right. And you're going to have to forgive this analogy, but we're potty training my two-year-old, so it's what I have on the brain. I think what Paul's saying here is that choosing to sin is like preferring your underpants soaked as opposed to dry. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's kind of what's going on here. And sin, it doesn't make us smart. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I got it. He's he running around in nothing but little superhero underwear. It's a fun time in my home most of the time right now. But no, that doesn't work that way. Sin doesn't make us grown up and smart and sophisticated. Like, sin is dumb, and it makes us dumb. Have you ever tried to help somebody who had locked themselves into a years-long pattern of habitual sin? It's like they can't even think straight, because we can't. And when we assert our independence from God, when we say, God, I'm going to do things my way, that doesn't turn us into more human-like people persons, we turn into beasts, these creatures of base instinct that cannot think beyond the present moment of pleasure or pain. So our minds don't work right, but but how do we get here? Why don't they work right? What explanation could we give for this? Paul is clear in his mind why our minds don't work right, and he gives a pretty clear answer, even if it's not soft and sterile enough for many of us to hear today or for our world to expect. We keep following the dominoes and and peeling back the layers, and now we're at the second one. Here's what happens next. God is judging us, or here's what happens previously, rather. Why do our minds not work right? Because, well, God is like actively judging us. Again, I know it's not easy to stomach, but let me read the text to you, verse 24 through 28. Therefore... God gave them over. That's going to be a key phrase. You're going to want to pay attention to that. In the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over. Second time you've seen it. To shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, here's a third time, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. Now, like I said, this, this question of God's judgment and wrath is, is not one we can dig deeply into right now, but that's okay because the basic point's pretty clear. God judges us by releasing us to the consequences of our sin. This is how his wrath will work at the end of time, and this is how his wrath is unfolding here and now. He doesn't choose evil for anyone, but he permits our choice as well as the consequences of that choice. So it's not that our human evil is God's fault. No, the beginning of that section began with the word therefore. We're right near the heart of the crisis. We've almost got to the lead domino, but we've got one more layer to peel, a bit more to unpack. And when we remove that, we expose the core. You see, at the bottom of this is we replace God. Let me take the text from the top again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God's made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So there it is. Dun, dun, dun. Our problem is idolatry. And every other problem you've ever faced, every heartache you've suffered, every conflict you've encountered, every fight you've had with the government, at work, with your family, within yourself, all of it traces to a single source, a lead domino, and that source is that you and I and the people sitting on either side of us have all chosen to replace God. We've looked out at the heavens and we've asked why enough times to realize that somebody has to be behind all this and we hear in our minds something of what this, this being out there wants from us and yet we've chosen to turn away from him. There it is. We live in a world where evil is celebrated. Why? Because people do evil things. Why do they do evil things? Because our minds don't work right. Why do our minds not work right? Because God is judging us. Why is God judging us? Because we have looked at an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving creator of heaven and earth and have said, please move aside. I'd rather devote myself to that instead. But let's be honest. It's, it's 2016. Is this even a real answer? Is it even possible that, that we still do this? That I am an idolater, an idol worshiper? I mean, this is not how we like to think about ourselves, right? And I got an email a few weeks ago from somebody trying to sell me something, and the subject line of the email was, in all caps, you are the smartest man alive. And I admit to you that I left it in my inbox for a while. <laughs> and I told myself it was because I thought it was funny, and that's true, but it's just not the kind of thing we like to think about ourselves. I mean, if I got an email that, that had as a subject line, you are an idol worshiper, delete, <laughs> it wouldn't last an hour. I mean, idolatry just seems so, so ancient, you know? I, I don't know about you, but when I think about idolatry, I, I don't see a mirror. I see a postcard. Distant people in far-off times and places doing primitive things. I recently heard uh, about this ancient festival that was honoring the, uh, the, the Hindu god Jagannath. It was, a, it was a version of the god Krishna. And and Jagannath was this, uh, this god that was both loved and feared because the people believed that their fortunes were tied to whether or not this, this god was pleased. And so once a year on this special day, they'd have this festival and they'd take this huge chariot up to the temple and they'd take one of the idols, one of the, uh, the, the stone things of this god and they'd put him on the chariot and they'd parade it through town. And people would worship in different ways. And one of the common ways to, to show your faith and love for this idol and to, to win blessing for your family was that these worshipers, these devotees, would, would throw themselves under the wheels of the chariot to be crushed as an act of sacrificial devotion. I mean, the gods must be placated, right? And we see this and we think, oh, we're, we're much more advanced. <laughs> We've moved beyond such superstition and, and fear. So a guy comes home from work uh, every day, after dinner, briefcase in hand. 
Every day his son asks him the same question. Daddy, will you play with me? And every day his son hears the same answer as dad walks past the family into the home office to make some more phone calls, answer a few emails, draft some reports, write some plays. He tells himself, he, he silences himself. He says, not today, buddy. And he silences his conscience by deceive, or reaffirming himself, by, by telling himself, it's all for the kids. I mean, Bill's got to get paid, right? A woman who grew up with nothing uh, develops the means to sustain herself, and she develops the ability to protect what she has achieved. Security becomes her favorite word, and she's pretty good at it too. Investments, insurance, she keeps a watchful eye on all her accounts. But eventually, the task becomes an obsession. Sleep is lost, the poor are ignored, her friends are neglected, more insurance, more investments, more security. She gets to a point where not only does she avoid financial risk, but emotional risks are rejected as well. I mean, tragedy doesn't call ahead, right? See, the outer form of idolatry has changed throughout the centuries, but the basic pattern is the same, and the effect is too. We start totally in control choosing to devote ourselves to some ideal or worthy cause or goal, and then this ideal starts asking for more time, money, attention, for more faith, energy, devotion, and then one day we wake up stuck, mindlessly locked into habits of rejecting or forgetting or pushing God to the side for the sake of something else. And I want to be clear enough to be helpful today. An idol is anything that in any way takes the place of God in your life. Can I say that again? An idol is anything that in any way takes the place of God in your life. One writer says that our God is our ultimate concern, was his phrase. Whatever is our ultimate concern. What, What is your primary or ultimate concern? What is the thing you wake up thinking about in the morning? What do you worry about? What makes you angry? What gets you excited? What do you make time for? What do you protect? I mean, it could be anything. G.K. Chesterton said that when people stop believing in God, we don't believe in nothing. We'll believe in anything. And John Calvin once referred to the human heart as an idle factory. We just keep making them, churning them out. Seems on point to me. See, we can idolize people a spouse, our children, our team, our race, our country. We can idolize objects like a, like a flag or a brand or dollar bills. We can idolize ideas like science or beauty or attractiveness or progress or liberty or happiness or creativity or independence or success or victory. Anything that you look to for meaning or security or status or worth or pleasure. Anything you love and serve and believe in, anything you would devote yourself to or die for or simply can't live without, all potential idols in waiting. See, idols are rarely bad things. Nobody worships trash. Idols are good things in the wrong place. There is a place in your heart, and I don't mean your emotions. I mean your core. I mean your center. I mean, the deepest part of you that makes you you, that steers the ship, that guides your way, there is a place within your heart that is reserved for God alone, but you've looked at him and said, probably without even realizing what you were doing, can you um, move, like maybe at least share your seat, 
And so we destroy ourselves. Somebody once said, when what is meant to be a servant is treated as a master, it becomes a tyrant. And put simply, bowing to an idol is eventually suicidal. So where do we go from here? Well, we, for starters, we keep reading Romans. Paul is literally just getting started, and he means to answer the questions he's raising. He wants to offer the solutions to the problem, and so let's keep going. But, but in the meantime, just looking at this text alone, let, let's do, let me give you three what we'll call pit stop takeaways. Been around the track once now. Let, let's stop it and see what we've learned, and then we'll progress. First of all, remember your bent toward idolatry. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, what is my idol? Isn't that the next step? To identify what my idol is so that I can get rid of it? And that's a good question. And later on in the service, we're going to put some reflection questions up on the screen for us to just think through and start to try to identify. And this is just you identifying within your own mind and heart what are the things that compete with God. It's good to identify what's competing with God in our lives today, but it's not enough. For one thing, we never have just one idol, and often the most dangerous ones are the sneakiest ones. And also, even if you figured out what it was today and dealt with it, you'd probably just make up a new one tomorrow. We're always finding new things to worship. So, so it's good, but it's not enough to label our idols. We've got to go a step further and remember our bent toward idolatry. We have to keep a, a, an awareness of our proneness to replace God. And maybe that doesn't seem very practical, but it is if you want a real relationship with God. A wife says to her husband, you know, you have a tendency to be defensive. And what does the husband say? I say, when? What did I say? Tell me and I'll fix it. (laughs) No, that's not that simple. You're kind of missing the point. You don't know you're doing it. So just be aware of the fact that you tend to. That's us and God. And one of the reasons why we never get where we want to go, why we never become who we want to be, is that we refuse to start where we really are. As in business, so in life. You've got to start by confronting the brutal facts first. And the brutal fact about our heart is that all of us are like a Walmart cart with a bent wheel. And I know you know what I'm talking about. We're like a Walmart cart with a wheel that doesn't work. Left to our own, we always curve toward idolatry. Can never forget this. And secondly, we need to resolve to let God be God. Maybe you're not into resolutions. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. But I've decided that I'm into New Day's resolutions. Every single day, sometimes moment by moment, I will consciously and intentionally resolve to let God be God. It's not my job. It's his. The historian of the Alcoholics Anonymous movement wrote a book about AA, and he called it Not God. Because in his studies, the consistent thing he said is that the first and biggest obstacle that an addict has to face is that they've got to acknowledge deep in the soul not being God. They've got to admit that no amount of manipulation or control is going to fix things. And then the alcoholic must acknowledge helplessness and fall into the strong arms of a higher power. First of all, concluded the founders of AA, we had to quit playing God. I'm not a drinker, you say. No, but you are an idolater. Me too. And don't miss what he's saying. Not being God means that we don't try to fix the problem ourselves. There's no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and getting rid of your idolatry. If I could fix this on my own, I already would have. And you too, we need help. 
which takes us to the third and probably the most important thing I'm going to tell you today. We must reconfess our need for the gospel. The good news that salvation can be found, can only be found in Jesus. See, if you read Romans 1 enough times, you'll notice that it's the story of Genesis 3 all over again. Adam and Eve in the garden enjoying God's friendship and provision and protection. And then this voice suggests that God can't really be trusted, that we're better off striking out on our own, finding our own path to life. God is holding out on you, we hear. And we listen. I listen. So things are not all good. We're not okay. We have a problem, an idolatry problem, and it is my problem. The problem with the world is me. I have chosen against God. I have replaced God in my heart. I have brought upon myself and those I love the curse of death and corruption because I want things more than I want God. I deserve wrath. I need a Savior and Lord. I need Jesus. I need the gospel. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.